welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. This one was a, a real treat. I had on my old friend, Philip Collins, who is a writer, a novelist, speech writer, journalist, philosopher, and we, we dug in on his uh, latest book, which is called When They Go Low, We Go High, Speeches That Shape the World uh, and Why We Need Them. And don't tell him I said this, but it's it's really an absolutely brilliant book uh, where he dissects speeches from uh, across history and argues that the common phrase we say that's just rhetoric in response to a politician gets things precisely wrong and he sets out to make the case that political rhetoric is inherent to constitutive of democracy democracy is about persuasion and discussion and so rhetoric is is part of that and that that should we need that in order to sustain to sustain liberal democracy as we can know it now and so it's no exaggeration i think to say that he thinks that words are uh, what can can save us so we start a bit biographically talk about how he ended up uh, as chief speechwriter for tony blair the british prime minister and actually invented that title because he thought that it was such an important role and some of his experiences uh, working with a, a senior politician at that level we then go through some of the the speeches, including Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and Pericles' funeral oration, and Lincoln's address at Gettysburg as examples of just how far back in time some of the approaches to, to rhetoric uh, even modern politicians take. So we had a really good conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Phil Collins, welcome to Dialogues. Well, thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. Yeah, it's exciting. I should say, uh, I probably said this in the intro, but to say to people that we are old friends, uh, known each other for a long time. So I know a lot about you, um, but let's, assu- let's assume that my listeners are in a small minority of people who don't know everything about Phil Collins. <laughs> so just for their benefit, who are you? Just where that- did you come from? Just for that small group. Like where you come- I should say also, you won't know this, but I had Fiona Hill on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and she's from a she's from a properly working class northeast background. She she outworking classed me by a massive margin. So mm-hmm. I have to say she set the bar pretty high. Minor's daughter, etc. But you're going to try and make the same claim, I think, of like boy made good, but uh, end up in Downing Street. But have at it. Who are yeah, you? Yeah, I mean that that I'll, I'm maybe I'll just let you do the introduction because that sounded a pretty good start. That's exactly what I am. I'm from the um, environs of Manchester in the northwest of. England, um, a working class old industrial town, a uh, town which had fallen on quite hard times when I was growing up there in the 1980s, and then via the usual route of university and ended up, uh, as you said, I suppose the pinnacle was um, being chief speechwriter for Prime Minister Tony Blair. And in a way, that changed the nature of my career trajectory, such as it was. I'd always written things, and I'd always considered myself to be a writer. I mean, that's what I've been subsequently. I've written for a long time. I wrote a column in The Times. Um, I now write a column in The New Statesman and The London Evening Standard and various other places. And I also have a, uh, a writing agency, uh, a company, and our job is to write in every conceivable format, mostly for senior business people, but um, but also for some public sector and charity. And, and that's not just in the UK. I mean, that's, that's an American business and that's an Indian business too. So rhetoric and the idea of argument and the, the art and science of how to be persuasive has become my thing. And uh, 
I write a lot about it and I teach it as well. So I teach at the Blavatnik School in at Oxford University, uh, the application of rhetoric and the the ancient insights of Aristotle and Cicero, which are still serviceable for contemporary rhetorical practice, which is very unusual yeah, because it's not really common for um, the insights of that era to have any application at all anymore. It's certainly not true of the science. It's not even true of the literary theory, but it is true of the rhetoric. Yeah, that's how I think of you now, is this is very much your your niche as sort of Mr. Rhetoric, if you, if you like. But what's what's the... the series of decision points along for you i'm not sure i've ever asked you this directly before but you, so you have a phd in political philosophy or am i getting that right i mean yeah, that's you, right. yeah. PhD. and you've written novels so yeah. you've so some in so, so you, you're one of these people i think has you know the great um blessing but also the great challenge of having the having had the opportunity to go in lots of different directions and a wide enough skill set. So why this rather than, say, academia or a more standard political route or even business? I mean, you were in business for a while. You were in the city. You've had So you've done so, so you've had to go at finance. You've had to go as a novelist. You've had to go as an academic. You're still kind of an academic now. And you've ended up very much down this route of, like, of what words matter at root, right? So what's, yes. what's led you down that path as opposed to the other paths you could have taken? Really just sort of following my nose. There's never been a plan as such. At, at every point, it's been, well, where next? Um, I've never really thought about it in a, a strategic fashion. So all the advice I offer to other people, I absolutely failed to follow myself. I've just taken up opportunities as they've arisen. And the only thread that I can see through the whole thing, and this is very much a, me looking back in hindsight, I certainly didn't conceive it as such at the time, is exactly what you've just said about words that there's um, writing and expression uh, and the construction of good arguments is the common theme, I think. And I think I found that when I went to work for Downing Street, I mean, I, mean, I a bit like you, I grew up in the milieu and I knew lots of people in politics and I'd, I'd started out in politics for uh, a Labour member of parliament called Frank Field as a hugely respected uh, man, on an expert on welfare policy, and he had given me my break. That would have been my first job. And so I'd become intoxicated by politics and, and intrigued. I'd never been involved in politics as a student, but I suddenly got very interested in it. And I, I approached it, I suppose, intellectually. I'd always wanted to be an academic historian. That's what I thought I was going to be. And um, doing a doctorate uh, cured me of that ambition because I suddenly realized that I didn't really want, at such a young age, to specialize so deeply in the way I would have would have had to have done. I was I was either cursed or blessed with an abundance of interests. And that promiscuity intellectually is both a virtue and a and a vice. You know, as La Rochefoucauld said, our virtues and our vices are always the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's um it's given me great breadth, but at various points I have worried that um I wouldn't have any depth to make any kind of splash in anything in particular. And that is where I suppose I've seized on um, the idea of rhetoric. I landed rather haphazardly as the chief speech writer to the prime minister, um, partly on account of that previous experience working for a Labour MP. I knew lots of people in that world. I was involved in it. I was on the fringes of it. And when they needed someone to come and write, write for him, I was sort of there and sort of the obvious person. But I absolutely insisted on speechwriter being my job. The the title of chief speechwriter, which is a commonplace in the American experience, yeah, 
you know, that there's all sorts of, you know, there's lots of dramatic representations of the chief speechwriter. It's a big deal. There, there wasn't one in the UK. That It wasn't a title. It wasn't a, a thing. The office doesn't really have the same um, authority as it does in the White House, for example. And uh, I, partly on the, the basis of the American example, thought that is the job I want to do. So I was recruited generally to go and work for the Prime Minister, and I insisted that that would be the thing that I should do. And that turned out to have been a, a brilliant decision, much better than I th- thought, um, partly because it fitted my talents such as they are to the task, but but more because the currency when you work for a Prime Minister, and from talking to people who worked in the White House, this is also very much applies to working for a president too, is proximity to the principle. If you're in the room, if you're around, if you're needed, then you're a big player. And if you're not, then you're not. And being the speechwriter means that you are required at almost every meeting because you need to hear the prime minister or the president talking. You need to keep up to date. Um, And you've also got a job that nobody else wants. So those two things are wonderful because you've got (laughs) eminence an authority, but no no threat. Because everybody regards it as a horrible graveyard job, and how can you possibly write, write for you know, a significant figure like Clinton or Obama or Blair, who know what they want to say, are incredibly articulate, brilliant at saying it, would be magnificent speechwriters themselves, and the only reason they're not doing it is that they don't have time. Yeah, the, the sort of the view is that you're you must basically be a dictation, you know. You just come and take dictation, right? You're glorified. So, in some ways, the better they are as a speaker, the harder the harder it is to see the value of a, a speechwriter, someone who can make Bush sound good or whatever. You think, wow, they must be pretty good. But someone like Blair is a good example. And so, can you say a little bit about how, like, what value did you add? Because you just said he's a great speaker anyway. What what was the Collins value add? I think there, there, were, there were two things. One is a purely practical point, which is that when you've got someone who is the, the leader of the country, it is a very poor use of their time for them to be writing their own speeches in detail. So it's a purely sort of administrative fact that you need someone who can do it. And precisely because they are so good, you need someone who's good because someone else has got to do that job and therefore they've got to be pretty good. If the principal were rubbish and I were a hopeless Uh, with words and it might not matter so much but I've actually got to hit their standard so them being good at it is a reason for for me um, being necessary so that's a a sort of important reason why why you're needed but also there's another reason a more substantive reason in a way which is that at the time I came to work for Blair it was in the latter half of his time as uh, prime minister he was prime minister from 1997 to 2007 and it was in the second half of that tenure and his his idiom had tired his register mm-hmm. was was boring he'd had this particular way of speaking as a campaigner and as a younger politician which was heavily borrowed from american politics and it was he he become rather staccato and he he famously didn't never used any verbs and yes, had to, <laughs> and the sentences were always like three words long, or there would like be whole paragraphs. I remember covering them sometimes. There'd be like yeah. whole paragraphs where the longest sentence had three words in it. It was almost like a point of pride for him to never utter an actual sentence. Well, it conveyed a sense of great urgency. Mm-hmm. And early on in his time, when he's campaigning to be prime minister, that was a, that was a principal virtue. But by the time he's become prime minister, 
and he's had a few years, years of office and he's starting to become an elder statesman. He's starting to know what he's doing. And we felt that the rhetorical charge had to change accordingly. He had to develop and grow. And this is one of the intriguing things about writing for somebody is, is the, the sense of character unfolding over time. And I think of it very much as a, as a novel where you know, if in a novel the author has set up a character and then 40 pages in that character does something out of character, as readers we don't like it. We don't accept it. We regard that as very bad writing. Now, of course, in real life, people act out of character all the time. We're not consistent people over time, but we don't like it in fiction and we don't like it in politics. So trying to get a a development of Mr. Blair that remained in character whilst at the same time shifted him from being a, a kind of young insurgent politician to being the senior politician in the nation, that was the substantive task. So that was the that was the task that I was charged with. So so there was a, a kind of real job to do. I wasn't really just a amanuensis. Mm, interesting. So let's just do a little. I want to turn to the to your to your book um, where we'll, we'll dig into. You make the case for politics. You make the case for rhetoric in defence of politics. You make the case for politics in defence of liberal democracy, and you make the case for liberal democracy in support of human well-being broadly. And so, so this, it, that's, it, if that's a, is that a fair stacking of, of yes. the way you see it? Yeah, but, so, but, fa- but you see a foundational role for 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 rhetoric as supporting politics, as supporting liberal democracy, rather than as an adjunct to it. It's not even at the yeah. side of it. It's at the very... Yeah. You say something like, I'll quote you here, actually, that you say, the moment that fiat is replaced by consent is the moment that oratory begins to count. Yeah. So there's a moment there, historically. It's like, so, so you're saying it's fundamental to, constitutive of liberal democracy, not just helpful to. Yes. So I'm saying it sounds like that- I've got that right. So what, what, why, what, what led you to that? conclusion yeah that, that's exactly right i am I'm, I'm making a very big claim for rhetoric although it's only the claim that cicero makes for rhetoric which is that rhetoric is as you say not the adornment it's not the verbal accompaniment of democracy it's a constituent part and of course it's easier to see that that's true when the whole electorate is there in the forum or in the uh, in the athenian polis and the speaker is talking to them, where the act, you are enacting politics, it is happening as you speak, and the rhetoric is the the political act. But in Cicero's De Oratore, he is absolutely adamant that the act of speaking is the same as statecraft. They're not separate entities. This is the same thing. And the the point that I locate as the the origin of the two disciplines is, is the funeral oration of Pericles, uh, in 43 BC, um, where Pericles for the, goes up and does what is, in one sense, a very conventional address, which is a, 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 a eulogy at, at the funeral of the deceased soldiers. This this was a commonplace event. But what Pericles does, insofar as we know, because, of course, we we only have uh, – the, the sources are, are not yeah. entirely reliable. In fact, we the only source we've got is Thucydides' account in the history of the Peloponnesian Wars. So you, 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 you say he might have added his own little bit here well, and there. Almost Definitely. certainly did. Yeah. Almost certainly yeah. did. I mean, because yeah. the, the speech is written in the style of the historian, so it's very probably – uh, not precisely what was delivered, but but that doesn't really matter so much as long as the account of the content is faithful. Because the crucial point about the speech is that Pericles 
elevates his address from a direct eulogy to the deceased to a eulogy for the city in whose name the deceased are said to have given their lives. Now, who knows whether they did or didn't, but that's what he does with the material. He, he kind of takes these lives and he, and he turns them into martyrs for the glory of the city. And by the city, of course, he means the democratic city. So he's saying that they have lived out their lives for the glory of democracy and that in, in the glory of the city lies our future. And that's the reason I, I then argue that rhetoric and democracy are born at the same time is that, and that little line you quoted makes this point, is that it's only in a democracy when public argument really matters. There's lots of rhetoric in non-democracies, and there always will be, but it has a different purpose. It has the purpose of issuing a command or an instruction or punishment or chastisement. There's all sorts of functions of of um, rhetoric which are non-democratic, but, but the act of persuasion is only necessary in a democracy. Hitler had no need to persuade anybody of anything because he had an enforcement mechanism. Right. Yeah. And the same is true of, of even less, you know, the, the lesser egregious tyrants. They've all essentially, are, they're giving you information. They're telling you what's what. But they're not asking you for your consent because they don't care what you think. Whereas in a democracy, you have to care. So the act of persuasion becomes critical to the, it's embedded in the very idea uh, when, if, where the people are the arbiters, that the, the act of persuading them then starts to become an object of study. It starts to become yeah. something that people care about. I think that's that's very convincing, and you do have versions of the declarative uh, speeches as well. You have you have Hitler, but it, as you say, that's a declaration. Whereas democracy requires dialogue, and dialogue requires speech and persuasion. And so it makes me think that actually, that's maybe that's what makes some of the most effective speeches the ones that do engage almost in an internal dialogue. I mean, they, they do, they counterpose themselves. They say on the one hand, they, on the other hand, they, they do point that they, it's almost a thinking out loud. I mean, I'm thinking about the Havel speech, which we, we, but, but a lot of these, there are, this like, there is almost this sense. And I'm just coming to this thought now that there's a good speech almost has the feel of a conversation <laughs> almost with it, with itself, almost oh, rather than just a declaration. I think that's right. I think a speech is a, Obviously, it's a monologue when you stand up and speak uninterrupted for 25 minutes or even up to an hour. But actually, it's not. It's a disguised conversation. It's a, because, and we call it an argument. And, and we have, you have to have an argument with someone. If there's no one on the other side of your argument, there's no argument. And most bad speeches fail in politics and in the corporate world because there's nobody on the other side of the argument, because the central proposition is a banality. And, and nobody else would say the other side. Therefore, this speech lacks real bite because nobody cares. Whereas a really tough speech will have that internal conversation. And in most of the classical structures of how to put a good speech together, there will be a section in which you take on the opposing arguments, the, the rebuttal section, where you air the opposing arguments and you, and you counterpose your argument to them. And it's one of the failings of modern political rhetoric i think is that it's become like everything else very polar and people make the mistake of caricaturing their opponent and the reason it's a mistake is that 
you know, might work sometimes for winning a political campaign. Uh, but what it doesn't do is persuade anybody because if you if you've just voted for the opposing party a few months ago, and I, as a political leader, essentially imply that you are a moron, a fool, and a vagabond, and um, morally dissolute for casting your vote for the wrong side, you're hardly likely to be persuaded by me. Because I've made no attempt to get inside what you did, and you did have your own reasons for it. I may not agree with them, but I ought to at least articulate them. Was if I would say instead, well, I understand that you were thought this, this, and this. However, I think you may be mistaken for these reasons, and have a look over there. I've got a chance at least of persuading you in time because I'm engaging with your actual reasons for your action. And to be generous to your opponent's argument is a courageous thing to do, but a, but always a more successful persuasive strategy than to simply caricature them. Well, that's a, that's a good question. Let me, let me push a bit on that because you have a view about democ- how democracies work, which is through dialogue and persuasion rather than proclamation. But you could take examples from both, you know, your, you know, your side of the pond and mine around Brexit and, of course, Trump's win which is that it's not about persuasion, it's about activation. You know, there's a lot of political science now that suggests that it's, you activate your base and that the whole, point of a, the whole point of a speech from Trump or Michael Gove in Brexit or you know, even Boris Johnson in Brexit is not to persuade anybody of the case for Brexit or to say, my, you know, take the opinion. It's to absolutely just activate your base by hitting certain, you hit certain neurons around whatever it is, race or immigration or threat or fear or something in order to get those people out to vote for you. So it's tribe. And so if it's a tribe, then you don't try to persuade your own tribe. You're trying to get your tribe ready to grab their spears and go out and kill the other tribe. Yeah. That's a very different view of democracy. And so I just you've smuggled in a, a, a very I agree with your view of democracy and therefore of rhetoric. But it does imply that persuasion is is what the goal is, whereas some people say, no, the goal is get our base out. No, I think it, I think those speeches you cited, those characters you've cited did persuade people. They just didn't do it with rational argument. Is because persuasion is comprised of three things, of which the rational dialogue is only one. It's the most important one. It's the one when politics is at its best, it's uppermost, but it's only one. And the other two, and this this goes straight back to Aristotle, um, are character and emotion. And those two things are critical. In fact, Aristotle thinks that character matters more than anything else. Mm. Um, Character, of course, is your credentials or it's your status you know if i'm if in the course of a pandemic i appeared on the television and i read out exactly the same script as the chief medical officer about the covid death updates that would not carry the same weight and conviction as it would if the chief medical officer was saying it even though the words are identical for the obvious reason that that person has the credentials in that world and i don't so your character it says an awful lot. So take Donald Trump, for example, a a brilliant example, almost perfect example of someone who, to my mind, is barely interested in rational argument, but is full of character, is a almost perfect case study of a characterful speaker. Everything that he ever did on still does is very Donald Trump-like. It's watchable. It's, um, It's remarkable. And you know, may not be desirable, but it's effective. He is persuading. And the other component is emotional, an emotional um, effect. Which again, let's go back to the 
2016 presidential campaign, almost perfect case in point of the three components of rhetoric. You had in Hillary Clinton, a presidential candidate who, to my mind, would have been a perfectly ordered, rational and disciplined president of the United States. There was no no question for which Hillary Clinton did not have a nine point plan. <laughs> but my God, it was boring. When she was called upon to try in some way intuit answers or connect that nine point plan to somebody's life, she wasn't very good at it. Donald Trump was almost the exact opposite. He remarkably, for someone of his background, was really good at getting people to feel he cared about their lives and understood them in some deep way. And he's very good at it. And you shouldn't, and I don't denigrate it either. It's a great skill. And that emotional connection he was making with people who were, in some, to some extent, the victims of global forces whose lives had not gone well, that's a real thing. It's not a fictitious thing. It's not, not to be denigrated. Just because it's done in the form of an emotional connection doesn't mean to say that, therefore, that is neither unpersuasive nor that it's somehow not real or unfair or we shouldn't do that. Yeah, and so you're not saying it, it's not that he was some some view of this, which is that he was somehow cheating. No, right? he wasn't. That, that and what you're saying is no, no, no. He was I just really playing a that. different. He was just playing a different instrument. He was he was, he was hitting a different he was playing, register. He was playing. I mean, in the in the rhetoric, Aristotle says, and I think he's right. I think this this bears out that the the most persuasive uh, speakers are those who can bring all those three parts into perfect alignment so that your your emotional connection and your emotional register is deepening your character traits and is at the same time lending emotional resonance to a disciplined argument when the three things work together then you're brilliant you're a genius and, and the most of the people i have in my book because it's an anthology largely of the best have that ability now trump didn't have all that ability but he did definitely did have an emotional connection and a character trait and i absolutely do not think it's cheating no i think that is um that's a sort of kind of form of snobbery, which is to say that the the things that um, I am influenced by, which is to say detailed and um, mm. very well-argued op-ed pieces in the New York Times, well, that's proper rhetoric. But yeah. emotional stuff that these other people do, that's just like silly nonsense. Well, no. Yes, that's not true. The real, uh, no, actually, it's so interesting. I actually watched... I made a point of watching the debates between at least some of them between Trump and Clinton with family members who were very, very different to me. This is through through my in-laws. And there was one particular moment. I'm sitting on the sofa with one of my in-law with one of my in-laws. And it was a the question was asked about healthcare. And Hillary went first and she said, Well, here are the five things we need to do. We need to build on the Affordable Care Act by bringing more people in through coverage and extend Medicaid. And I was like, wow, that's great. I, was, I didn't say anything. But I was like, that's great. And then Trump spoke and he said, it's been a disaster. Yeah, I think he said disaster like 18 times. And what we need to do is get rid of all these state lines that are getting in the way of healthcare providers. And I think he said, wipe out the lines, but it's a disaster. And I'm going to give you beautiful healthcare, the best beautiful healthcare you've ever had, right? And it was completely, <laughs> I was like, what the fuck was that? And my in-law was like, that was really good. Yeah, I yeah. think Trump really nailed that one. I was like, and we looked at each other. And I was like, what about the five point plan from Hillary? <laughs> well, it's exactly this point was that yeah. I, and you're right. It was a kind of form of snobbery. It was like I, you know, it was like the PPE or the the linear think tanky rational op-eddy answer. Um, also, and look at what you just did in your question there. You did a perfectly serviceable little impression of Donald Donald Trump in the, in the use of the word beautiful. The way you said it, you said it in a Trump way. 
You couldn't do that for Hillary Clinton, could you? Because he's got a character that even those of us who aren't very good at impressions, we can do him. And yeah. it was, and that that's gold dust in politics. That's really important. Boris Johnson has something of the same thing, and he excites the same kind of reaction, which is people who don't like him. And I'm he's not of my political persuasion, so ultimately I don't like him. But I'm trying to just work out what he does and why, how he does it and why it works and what he's good at. And he has something of the same thing. I, I'm, I'm not someone who presses the comparison between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump very far because I, I think it breaks down quite quickly. I think right. most comparisons, in fact, between American and British politics break down very quickly and people do make them too freely. And But I don't think Johnson is in the same category as Trump at all. And we might come on to this later when we talk a bit about Gettysburg where I think Trump revealed himself to be a very different creature from anyone in the American tradition and very different from Boris Johnson. But the thing that they do share is that they were appealing to a very large cohort of voters who had not done well out of prosperity, globalized prosperity. They had not been beneficiaries particularly of that. And they felt angry about it and left out. And they both those politicians were able to the fury of their opponents who regard them as imposters to articulate that sense of pain. And so in a way, Trump did what Bill Clinton did. He felt their pain. Yeah, yeah. actually, um, actually uh, let's, let's talk a bit about American political rhetoric then, as we've talked a bit about Trump already. And maybe this is a good, you have talk, you talk about Gettysburg both in the book and, and elsewhere. Um, and I think the, there's a sense, I, I don't know if this is fair, but a lot of Americans see you, you, you've got Kings, I Have a Dream. You've obviously got Lincoln uh, and and you've got Kennedy. I think you do. I think you've got the Kennedy Ask Not. Um, and so that, there's a sort of slightly parochial view, if I can say it, that Americans sort of think the American political rhetoric was born in America. And, and I think you make a pretty strong argument that that's not, not the case. So maybe it'd be helpful for you to just draw draw a bit of a line between some of the more classical ways of thinking about it, maybe using Gettysburg example, but as a yeah. point Well, yeah, American political rhetoric is much bigger and more important and better than, than something that was just invented by um, Thomas Jefferson. It's, I mean, the founding fathers are deeply immersed in the classics. You know, they are highly um, literate, and, and highly versed in, in the great works. And in particular, the person who is most influential on John Adams and on Jefferson, on Madison, is Cicero. And they quote him repeatedly in the mm. Federalist Papers. So there's no, there's no mystery about this. We know that Cicero is a great influence on the, early, on the American Republic. And Cicero's locutions, and Cicero was a great speechwriter and speech giver in the Roman Forum, and there's quite a few phrases which recur in American presidential rhetoric, which will be very familiar to people. The, the equivalent of the not the blue states or the red states, but the United States, that or the ever greater union. These you can find all of these in Cicero. They're all there. And Cicero is the the source of the, uh, an idea which he calls in the Latin the optimus status republicae, which is to say the optimal state of the republic, the highest form of Republican ideal. And that's what the founding fathers are trying to do. And that idea, Optimus Status Republicae, is the subtitle of Thomas More's 16th century book, Utopia. Mm. And Thomas More brings the tradition of the, of the Republic back into vogue during the European Renaissance. 
And it becomes then the flowering of a great intellectual birth of the Republic. So again, you've got this, this rhetoric right there at the start of the American Republic. And, it, and therefore, there's something very, I think, rather beautiful about the way in which successive presidents have paid their respects to this tradition. An American political rhetoric is a tradition. And I think there's a way in which all those famous speeches, which, of course, are very familiar, and I wouldn't have treated them had there not been something else to say about them because they are very well known, but they're, they're part of a conversation. And there are lines that uh, Kennedy uses, which Obama uses, and they and he got them from Jefferson. And so you've got these these traditions, and and the particular tradition there are two that I think is worth dwelling on. One is the inauguration, uh, which every inaugural address is essentially the same. Which is to say, we've had a bruising encounter, uh, the nation has been divided, but now we must come together. It's a standard speech. Everybody does that, apart from one person, Donald Trump, who Donald did not. Trump. Who talked about the American apocalypse? Yeah, he did. He did, he did a Trump speech. He did a yeah. campaign speech yeah. on, on the. But he was the, the exception. Yes, he was the exception, and um, it's as close to us as a secular republic will ever come to a sort of sacred right. The other one, where again Trump is a notable exception, is Gettysburg, because after Lincoln in eighteen sixty three, does this remarkable speech where he defines American liberal democracy in a, in a single sentence, really. Um, even though Lincoln famously was not the person who delivered the Gettysburg Address, that was uh, Edward Everett, who was a, a notable um, professional orator. He spoke for four hours or something. And Lincoln, yeah, it went on forever. But, Lincoln was like a few minutes. and uh, Lincoln was an afterthought, you know. And also, but also, I mean, we, I, want, I, want to hear, I want to hear more about Gettysburg. Was it true also that at the time it just wasn't that well received? In the, yes. I mean, the crowd couldn't hear him very well. They were bored by this point. Uh, he sort of said it relatively and then got, up, got off the stage, right? That it shows is, you that there's different kinds of persuasion. Yeah, that is true. I mean, they, they, in those days, they used to employ what they call whisperers, people who would go around in the crowd and, and say what he was saying because, of course, there's no amplification and it's an open-air battlefield at Gettysburg. And... Uh, most of them couldn't hear Lincoln, who was not a great speaker. So, yeah, most of them couldn't hear him. There was no sense that this was an important moment immediately. It was only when it was reported in the newspapers a few days later and it started to slowly kind of take off. It's very much a, a retrospective uh, greatness. Mm. It's, it wasn't in the moment. There was no ovation for him at all. But ever since then, every American president has gone to Gettysburg to deliver a essentially a cover version mimicry of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and they've pretty much all done them. And I, I've read them all so that you don't have to. And there's virtually nothing in any of them, except for the fact that they're paying their respects. And that's really a really fine thing to do. So they're deliberately boring. They're deliberately saying the same thing. That's the point. You know, it's like, a, it's like, it's like going to church and saying, oh, but it was the same last week. You know, that's the point. <laughs> that's what they're doing. Yeah, I've said this prayer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Can't we have something new? Well, yeah. It doesn't work like that when you're paying your respect, when you're honouring a tradition. That's what you're doing. You're, you're deliberately saying this, the, exactly the same sentiments. The only two presidents who didn't do that, uh, one was uh, in 1963, the centenary of Gettysburg was supposed to be delivered by John F. Kennedy. But on the day of delivery, he was called down to Dallas, some very important party business from where, sadly, he never returned. 
So Eisenhower had to step in and do that job for him. And then the other one was Trump, who in during the campaign, his first campaign, he went to Gettysburg to deliver an address on the battlefield site. And bear in mind, it's a cemetery. The, the war dead are all lying around. It's the only um, it's the only war um, site in the north. And he, instead of paying his respects to the Republic, which is the form, he did a 45-minute tirade about the corrupt American political system and the rigged media and all the usual paraphernalia, which to do anywhere and tell the people their country is corrupt is, is actually pretty grim. But to do it there was a kind of sacrilege to go there, deliberately go there and 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 make such a speech on that occasion in that place. I thought it was really, that's the first time I realized he really was a threat. He was really was different. He really didn't care about the norms and the forbearance that you need in American democracy. He just didn't have it. And that therefore, whilst I never, I always thought American democracy would hold up well. I thought his guardrails would be strong enough. Yes. And indeed, that's turned out to be the case, yeah. I think. So I wasn't alarmist about it. I didn't take the Timothy Schneider view that this was the first step to fascism. However, I still do think that Trump was a was a threat to some of the norms of a liberal democracy, some of its nicest moments when people pay their respects to it. That's so interesting that that was the moment for you because so many other people would point to a policy decision in particular or some other aspect of his his time in office. But it was the fact that it was consecrated ground i mean i think to use lincoln's words yeah um and that that was that that was such a violation it was it was you know it was a de- desecration um, yes, it it, to use your your terminology one thing i wanted to ask oh to ask you about which i think is is related a bit to obviously link lincoln at gettysburg but many of the speeches that you draw on are and you say this in the book are at moments of high drama i mean back to pericles or whatever there are moments of um, threat of drama, of opportunity, of moment. And one of the things I wasn't quite clear about as I was reading through your argument was, on the one hand, you make the argument that we need rhetoric to save democracy. Uh, and you say, and you talk about, you have this lovely line about enchantment, actually. You say the solution to disenchanted politics cannot be populism. It has to be better, more enchanted politics. And there I think you're seeing rhetoric as really having a very, very high calling uh, to, to defend and sustain democracy, as we've discussed. But on the other hand, you also say it's great when it's boring. You say if public speech is boring, the proper response is to be thankful. And, and you, you mentioned how speech is about ben- the withdrawal of, welf- of welfare benefit tapers. <laughs> and I think you and I have talked about this before, but that's a speech I had to, I had to work with Nick on, on tax increment financing. We've all been there. So on the one hand, you seem to be saying it's great when it's mundane because that means everything's going well. On the other hand, you're saying we need it to be dramatic and save it. So is that just a temp? Is that just it depends, right? So in 1988, it didn't matter so much as in 89, in 2000, whatever. Yeah, I think it depends where you are because the, the, the point I'm making about the mundanity of modern rhetoric is that it's often said that there are no great speeches left and there hasn't been one for a long time. And I think that's true, but not necessarily for a bad reason. I think it may be because, as, as you said, 
pretty much all the speeches in the books are at moments of high drama. There are moments of great peril, usually, for the democracy in question, or at least for some part of that, or some very grave injustice which is done within the confines of the um, of the polity, such that some people are not participating as full citizens, notably Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, um, but also some of the other sort of the Eastern European speeches. So there's there's always a great drama or an injustice at their heart. And to the extent that the advanced democracies have alleviated the worst of their injustices, it makes rhetoric harder to do. And I don't want to be too Pollyanna about that. There are many grave problems in advanced democracies still, but they're not quite of the order that they were in, say, the 18th century. And the degree of inequality is not the same. The degree of racial injustice is not the same as it was. There's another reason, too, I think, which is that once upon a time, we go back to the late 19th century, there's a great speech by the British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, and he's talking about health care. He's talking about the health of the nation, public health disasters, by which he means epidemics. Mm. Interesting time to talk about this because we thought that had gone. And of course, it hasn't gone. But then it was really common. The the most important and, and common diseases of the day were contagious diseases, which is to say they were public diseases. And that's what public health really is. It's something which where, you know, my presence next to you could endanger both of us. Uh, we can catch things. And they were killers because we didn't have the medicinal barriers against them. So you've, first of all, you've got a, a degree of inflammation of the problem. You've got something very severe. But most importantly, I think, the solution to cholera in the London uh, streets, for example, is for the government to have a large infrastructure project and build the sewers. And that is indeed what they did. So Disraeli is standing there on a platform saying, I know the answer, which he did. And what is more, I have the executive authority to carry this out, and I will. And that gives the speech real resonance. Whereas if you take something vast like climate change, for example, a, even a president standing on a, a summit in Glasgow talking about climate change doesn't really have the executive authority to make the world entirely different because the Chinese premier hasn't turned up and the Indians are only committing to 2070. And although it's not unimportant, the issue, and it's not unimportant, the intervention of an American president who's, who thinks climate change is a reality, it isn't quite the same because it's such a vast problem and, it's, and the, the the authority of the speaker is related to the to the effect of the speech that's so that's so interesting one of the things that i noticed when i moved to the u.s was uh, just after i came here obama put out one of his budgets and no one cared mm-hmm. uh and I, and I was at brookings at the time i was like why like this is like budget day is a huge day in the uk and then i kind of realized it's because when the chancellor stands up in the UK and delivers his budget, it's what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you're hanging on every word and the markets are hanging on every word because what he's saying is, is going to happen, is going to happen. Whereas in the US, the president puts out their budget and it's usually just a sort of signal of, here's what I would like to do if I was a prime minister, but actually yeah. I can't get Congress to agree to it. No, so it's, right. a signal, it's a signaling exercise. It's, an, it's a great example. Gambit. So yeah, yeah, the opening gambit of a negotiation, gambit. but it's completely... There are fewer great speeches in federal countries. Um, because there's because in Britain the centralised authority means the Prime Minister um, can stand up and say, I'm going to change all these schools, for example, and has the authority more or less to do so. And clearly when authority is spread in a country, then that's 
that's not so easy. That's, that's really, I hadn't thought about that. That's a very interesting point. I also wanted to come back to your earlier point about, you know, there are fewer dragons to slay now. I'm thinking there's this line actually from this book by Kenneth Minogue, The Liberal Mind. I don't know if you know that book, but at yeah. the end of it, he talks about the failure of St. George to retire. And he's, 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 he's basically analogizing liberals to St. George and saying, okay, you slayed all the big dragons, right? Poverty, legal racism, etc. But rather than retiring, you just keep looking for smaller and smaller dragons to slay, but with yeah. the same force. Uh, but each time, it's the battle has to be fought as if it's the same, even though he's laying like tiny, tiny dragons. And it's kind of what you're talking about here, well, isn't it? It is. And you end up with a sort of this peculiar bathos when that happens. I have lost count of the number of British politicians who've come to me and said, can you make me sound a bit like Barack Obama? And I have to say to them, <laughs> let me the ways in which you are not like Barack Obama. I mean, firstly, you're not Barack Obama. Secondly, you're not president of the United States, which gives you the ethos, credibility, which, is, which you don't have as a junior minister in the housing department. And thirdly, you are not a black man who's become president of the United States in a century in which there are people alive who remember segregated cities. And Obama has that story at his back every time he speaks. And it's a remarkable thing, quite apart from his sheer brilliance as a speaker, which will, which is like an additional thing. He's got all of those advantages over you first before we even contemplate him being better than you. So it's inconceivable that you can be like Barack Obama. And in fact, it would be entirely wrong. Even if I could, it would be wrong because the word decorum mean, is a rhetorical term. It comes from rhetoric and it means being appropriate to your setting. It means respecting your audience. So if you are on second after lunch at the local government chronicle conference talking about housing benefit and you come on like Barack Obama with some grand thing, you are going to sound preposterous. And I think I may have done, I think I may have done that gig. I think you probably haven't. You probably did it in that way. And people will look at you as if you've completely lost it because you've not understood the setting. And in a funny way, it's a strange discourtesy because those people have come to hear something in particular. They've given up their mm -hmm. time. And for you to come on like your Dr. King on the, at the march on Washington, when actually they just want to hear what's the latest taper rates on the, the benefits, is a failure of decorum. So yeah. we have to get our setting right in, in rhetoric as well. And that, that's changed. So with the, the smaller and smaller and smaller issues, harder and harder to fix, it means our rhetoric gets diminished a bit. It's inevitable. There's one other thing, too, that, that may, that's made a big difference, which is important in explaining why rhetoric is harder now and, and less flowery, which is the extension of the franchise. In the late 19th century, particularly in Britain, the general idiom was extremely flowery and literary and that was because largely the electorate was an almost exclusively educated electorate it was a property qualification and only i mean 40 percent of the country didn't vote at all and so you could be pretty sure that your voting electorate had a set of references that were quite common you, you could well, imagine that most of them would know Dickens and would know Shakespeare. And the, the speeches of Palmerston and Gladstone and Israeli are full of references of that kind. When you get the full extension of the franchise from about 1928 onwards, when most people are then able to vote in the United Kingdom, you've got a much wider range of educational 
prowess. You've got a wider range of people, different social backgrounds. And so you're trying to appeal across a range, and that makes it harder. And as a consequence, rhetoric becomes more demotic, more popular, more like the rhythms of everyday conversation than it was once upon a time. Not entirely a bad thing, I would say, but but that's certainly an effect. That's certainly happened. I was thinking about both of those points, the knowing your audience point and the uh, and also the early point you made about having the history at your back in relation to the the king speech, which maybe we can talk about a little bit, which you do which is obviously obviously in your book. And one of the things I one of the things that struck me about that is, of course, because you know he's reverend, and so he he, he draws on biblical syntax even even not necessarily explicitly there's a sort of bit there's a rhythm to that which would have been understood by pretty much everybody and i think even in the u.s today there's still sufficiently strong sense of that so he's able to draw on that but it's also just the time he's at as well and the moment he's at if you actually read it on the page now it's not i mean i'll probably get shot for saying it's not a great speech i mean it's like it's it's you know the fierce urgency of now is yeah really i mean it's not a great phrase but it's a great phrase and everybody uses it right and 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 actually the whole thing about the cash check which you talk about as well kind of works but it's sort of mm-hmm. you know so but just flatly on the page it's I, I don't think it would have made it into your book just flatly on the page right no but a, f- a few things elevate it and and the main thing of course is the righteousness of the cause that's what really gets it in there and um it's also his delivery. I mean, he, he's a beautiful speaker. As you say, it's biblical. He's a preacher. Um, but it's, it is the, the rhythms of those cadences, that biblical language is remarkable. And it's not a particularly well written speech. And that's because it wasn't written. Now, there's a peculiarity about that speech is that mm. the council checks that you just m- mentioned, that was the speech that Martin Luther King wrote in order to deliver on that day. Because in the run-up to the March on Washington, there was, there, was, there was quite a lot of consternation about that meeting. Kennedy, in particular, didn't want it to go ahead because he was very frightened that there'd be a riot and it would set back the cause and they wouldn't get the legislation. So it, there's already a sense of anxiety about this event. And, and King was prevailed upon by his advisors to, to write a new speech. They said to him, don't, whatever you do, don't do that dream thing you're always doing. You know, we've heard it so many times. It's so boring because he'd done it all over the place. He'd been around the country. Uh, he's like on his, it was a sort of Bob Dylan never-ending tour. He would constantly preach and he'd, he'd say versions of I Have a Dream all over the place. So he can't do that. It's really boring. It doesn't go anywhere. You've got to write a proper speech. And so he did. He wrote a speech called The Council Check, which uses the metaphor of, a, of the bankrupt nation and the, you know, the nation and the check's been returned um, unpaid etc and it's fine it's okay it's uh it's a bit long he was meant to speak for four minutes he's already 16 minutes in and there's no great reaction from the audience because it's a very hot day he's last on the bill everyone's a bit bored they want to go home and mahalia jackson gospel singer who traveled a lot around with martin luther king whispered to him as he's speaking tell them about the dream martin She'd heard him do it, I think, in Detroit a few months earlier, and she just thinks he should do that. So he just says, tell him about the dream. So he essentially lays aside his script, and he speaks extempore. He speaks from memory. And so 
He's not exactly making it up because he's done versions of it before, but he is nevertheless, so the biggest event of his life is speaking without any notes, certainly without autocue, without a script. And so in that context, to watch it again, knowing that, it's a remarkable feat of rhetorical fireworks. It's incredible. And the bit I find most most moving and most technically uh, astonishing is the end, because one of the hardest things to do when you're speaking without preparation is to end well. It's very easy to end on a bomb note. Say, oh, well, and uh, yeah, and uh, anyway, thank you. Uh, any questions? Mm-hmm. And you kill it. <laughs> and, um, and King ascends to his ending. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. And it's magnificently brilliant how he controls it. And he brings it down the long slide. It's beautifully done. And it's a, it's, it is a work of genius. And it's an incredibly conventional answer. Whenever I'm asked what is my favorite speech, I, I, I sort of think I should think of something else. But I, I, I do think it's the best. I, I just really do. I think it's astonishing. So, um, And when I discovered the it's... Genesis, I, it made me even like it even more. Yeah, that's fascinating. I actually didn't, I didn't know except from you the story about him sort of not doing great, and then and the check thing was like, what is this? And people were probably like, what's this check again? <laughs> and then it's sort of like, and someone's saying to him like, yeah, you need to just do the dream thing. Yeah, um, and he'd done it. Yeah, he's, enough, like, he went out there and he tried to play the new album, and they thought, no, just do like the hits, do, do the old stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he was so good at it, and he rose to the moment. He in the moment. I mean, that's also the other. That's also the other big difference, isn't it? Is that, and that's the character point, I guess, too. Is that there are just some moments that require a leader to just step into it, yeah. and and not be and grow into it, right? Yes, yes. So the, a great speech needs that moment. It, it can't be great without the moment. You you can't do it. At, you, if you did it on another moment, it wouldn't last because it has to answer a question. It has to answer a moment. And, and that that's why we remember it, because it's such a crucial part of American 20th century history. And and King spoke for it. He embodied that moment. He he completely owned it and, and described it back to the nation. It was it's a remarkable piece of speaking. And I quite often, when I'm training people, I get... Um, people to to read Martin Luther King's speech out themselves, just, you know, people in a room being trained, and also to read one of Obama's speeches to see the contrast. And I find that they can do quite a lot with the King's speech because it's so rhythmic. It is really biblical, and it's got a sort of music of its own. And even people who are not as practiced as Martin Luther King can get the music. With Obama, they can't. Obama's very prosaic. If you read an Obama speech out yourself, it doesn't really sing. Whereas with Obama, it absolutely does sing when he says it. In fact, you know, like he did with Charleston, sometimes he actually sings. Mm. I talked to Cody Keenan, who's uh, the guy who helped him write that speech after the General Pinckney shooting. And I said to him, with some experience of what those meetings are like with a sort of senior politician where you're contemplating what you might do on a big occasion i said did he come in at any point and say in a speech meeting that i've got a great idea about 20 minutes in what i'm going to do is i'm going to stop the speech and i'm going to sing amazing grace <laughs> i said if he'd come in to, you've got to stop him you can't possibly let him do that that's madness isn't it 
And Cody said, that's exactly what Obama said. He said, I've got this idea. I think I might just sing. And they all said, no, no, don't be ridiculous. You can't possibly sing. It's absurd. He said, I'll leave it with me. I'll just, I'll see, see how it feels. And it's astonishing. It's amazing. He just does it. And it's, and it's wonderful. It's the only well, thing everyone gr- remembers. Oh, yes. I mean, even just you talking about it now, actually, it's moving to even it's, think about it. It was such it's just, incredibly like, moving, uh, just yeah. the instinct he had yeah. um, in that moment. But again, because he could feel it in the audience, etc. I want to talk about one one more speech um, from the I mean, it's just a, a wealth of speeches in there. And um, I really just think you've done an amazing job of taking them apart uh, and saying what makes them great is you mentioned Eastern Europe before um, the Vaclav Havel um speech which i guess was new new year's day 1990 i mean there's there's a standard it's tradition to do new year's day speech right so he just become president in 89 and one of the reasons i thought about this one is because i think you say that in the original version of the speech he ended it by saying goodbye (laughs) right so that's a great example of like not fantastic not a fantastic ending but there's lots in that speech there's the moderation there's the um call there's a challenge yeah to the audience the implicating the audience so and there's there's also great imagery as this line about the window out of the plane looking looking yeah. you know which which he refers back to again and again the so the power of imagery the call for moderation and the direct challenge to the audience at a moment when he really didn't have to do that so yeah. can you just say a bit more about a why you chose that and b those those points yeah well i chose it because um, I wanted a speech that was a recent sort of liberation of a nation, and um, and I wanted one where the there was a fledgling democracy, something was coming into being um, after a long period of decades of um, different forms of tyranny. And Harvell, who was a playwright before he was prevailed upon to go into politics, um, and uh, and a lovely writer just produced this magnificent um, address, as you say, on New Year's Day. He's just become president, and he is he's upholding the tradition of the New Year's speech, but it's unlike any other New Year's speech because what he does with it, instead of simply a, a series of kind of seasonal banalities, he he's full of great imagery. He does describe flying into Prague and seeing the kingdom and... Um, but the thing that really marks it is it's the first time anybody has told the truth for about 40 years. Mm-hmm. And, the, I mean, if you read any of the novels of Milan Kunderov when he was still writing in Prague, they're full of those compromises with the truth and the rewriting of truth. And this is the first time that any politician stands up on the stage and, and says it truthfully. And he, as you said before, he slightly up- upbraids the Czech people for their complicity in what has gone before. And it's incredibly brave. to say, I mean, These are the people who've got to vote for him, and he tells them off for the way that yes. they've been sort of complicit with tyranny. He has, his, he has this line in there about, I think this is the headline that you use, the moral contamination. He says that we're morally mean, contaminated. Yeah, yeah this is amazing. Contaminated moral environment in which truth is, is um, falsehood and falsehood is truth. And it's a, it's a wonderfully stark sort of rinsing of all the lies that have been told under, under communism, under a regime, which as he goes on to, to set out, um, truth was what the authorities said it was. And for the first time, someone is standing up and saying, no, it isn't. 
there is a truth and it is independent of me the speaker and it's the another reason i chose it is because that question about truth and falsehood is a perennial question in the history of rhetoric you go all the way back to aristophanes and his critique of socrates in the clouds you know making the weaker argument the stronger the critique of rhetoric has always been that it is just a kind of clever ruse in which smart people like me speechwriters um, use our words in a way that pulls the wool over your eyes and um, and tricks you and the sophistry the sophists were the first itinerant band of writers they were the very first people to make a living out of writing speeches the sophists so sophistry is very much the charge against rhetoric and duplicity is written into the idea of rhetoric from the very beginning and havel addresses that so that's what this speech is about it's about the nature of the truth and he's saying that we've all lived in a contaminated moral environment and for the first time we're out and he then goes back to that great image of flying in on the plane and looking down at the kingdom and by implication it's a different kingdom is a kingdom now in which truth and falsehood can be stated and whether or not simply decreed and so it, in a way it's an absolute signature speech for the whole book because it takes us back to where we started which is the rhetoric and democracy being born together and here they are the first speech of the new democracy somebody for the first time talking about truth and falsehood as though they are real values and real things not just politically decreed mandates that come from a tyrant yeah you have a lovely line where you say uh, the first casualty of the war on truth is morality and i think you say that in that section on harvel because i think that's so there is this truthy or truthfulness i've written a bit about bernard williams book on truthfulness as the virtue and so the virtue of truthfulness seems to also lie at the heart of your view about what would count as good rhetoric as opposed to quote bad sophistry to, yes. to oversimplify yes and that that is a a distinction that i wrestle with a lot because i was quite conscious uh, in this book that i wanted to include speeches i didn't like speeches i might i do think of as as terrible so for example the the obvious person you can't shy away from in this context is adolf hitler because he was you know objectively extraordinarily effective as a as a spectacle as a sort of you know purveyor of theater um he's not a great speaker conventionally but the the moments were extraordinary and the arguments are battering rams and you must not shy away from the capacity of all those tricks of the trade all those rhetorical skills to be turned to terrible malign effect and so i, I i've included that and i've wrestled with that idea and it is truthfulness is i think the defining difference because objectively what hitler is saying is not true hmm. you know he, he it's full of lies it's and absolutely. he but uh, and he knows it not he to be it. true yeah, that's that's does. the thing that really it's not just yeah. truthfulness it's like he says oh we've been patient you know we've been trying he, he did this all the time didn't he? he said look we're trying to make we have no choice but to invade but whatever so the difference between like a falsehood and tr- is that he knew and sometimes I think Trump doesn't know, right? Yes. Also, I didn't mean to jump. I don't mean to analogize no. in that sense. But you know, there's a difference between a person that gets stuff wrong or is just yeah. You know, it's a, it, the it's a very interesting um, book on Hitler by the um, uh, literary writer J.P. Stern, 
And in the book, he, he has this section about Hitler's rhetoric, which is I, was quite influential on me, where he writes about Hitler as a perlocutionary speaker, which is to say that the perlocutionary act is one where I carry out the act in the, in the process of saying it. So I promise. It's not just the words I promise. It is also my promise. And he says that Hitler does this with things where by simply by saying things, he thinks he enacts them. So he he does think that what he says is true, even though at one level he knows it's not true. He thinks he's making it true because he's, he's enacting the truth whilst he's doing it. And the I've, I've, I'm sticking up for the idea of argument and rhetoric as there being a, a search for a truth rather than the, simply the enacting of a truth, which is defined in the utterance. And yes. it's very important distinction, obviously, for all democracies, or for indeed for anybody. But um, that's that's at the heart, absolutely at the centre of the idea uh, of rhetoric. And we we often say, "Oh, it's just rhetoric," which we mean either that it's inconsequential or that it's probably false. They didn't really mean it. They're just trying to get you to do something, but it's not true. And we need to battle that. We need to fight it. That's part and parcel of kicking back against the diminution of the idea of democracy, which is a very current thing. We need to to fight back. And that's, in the end, where the book goes. It's to say that the the most of the speeches I've collected in the book are politics at its very best. And although those moments come rarely, and there's lots of awful rhetoric and lots of low politics, at its best, liberal, liberal democracies do have the capacity to be elevated and to and to be good and it's the best we can do you know there's no there's no similar book can be written about the speeches of fidel castro you know eight hour epics in which nothing interesting is ever said because it doesn't matter he doesn't have any listeners or he, 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 he i guess he, he well not voluntary listeners no, no as you no. sit well, yeah. i should let, let you go but just as you look forward now you've been looking back a long time through all throughout history as you look forward given that we've been through a bruising time, you say that in the book, in terms of the state of liberal democracy. Are you are you feeling hopeful broadly about the state of liberal democracy, but also about the role of rhetoric in re-enchanting it, to use your, your terminology? Do you see signs of hope? I see signs of hope, but I also see signs of regress as well. So I think it depends where I'm looking. When I look at Hungary and Poland and Turkey, uh, I am not hopeful at all. I see really significant assaults on the idea, the fledgling idea of liberal democracy. However, to counteract that, where those democracies are more established, the United States, the United Kingdom, I am hopeful. I, I remain very hopeful. I'd never, ever thought that the difficulties we're going through were really analogous to the 1930s, was so much more prosperous than we were then, was so much more embedded. And so whilst I'm not complacent about the the change to the norms and the, and the upsetting of some of the conventions of democracies, I remain quite hopeful. Democracies are mostly tacit institutions, and they're not they're not actually embodied by the rules and forms. And even, even in America, it's not really the Constitution, which is the, the guardrail. It's the, it's the everyday norms. It's the forbearance. It's the noise. And no, I won't do that because it's not. There's no rule that says I won't, but it's just not the way it's done. 
And in, I think, Ziblatt and Levitsky's book on how democracies die, which is a much better book than its title makes it sound, it's because it's not really about how they die. It's about how they wither. And, and they talk about forbearance being a very important part of how democracies conduct themselves well. And the only way we can convince people of that is by arguing for it and to replenish the the argument for democracy in another generation. I never thought when I was in my 20s that that would be necessary. And I've discovered that it is necessary. And so in a way, that's given the book a real charge because it suddenly felt like a very important argument. If, mm. Otherwise, if, for a long time, I've wanted to write a book of this kind. I thought, well, does anybody need to hear that? Isn't it obvious? Suddenly, it's not so obvious. So it needed needed to be said as it needs to be said over and over again. But I remain hopeful because I do think American liberal democracy stood up. And I do think British democracy is standing up. And I think they will be there in some recognizable form for the foreseeable future. It's the rest of the world that I worry about. And in particular, we've got, I think, staging before our very eyes for the rest of our lives, we've probably got a perfect drama of these two sides because we've got, on the one hand, a huge, raucous, vibrant, chaotic democracy, such as India, counterposed to a one-party sort of Marxist capitalist state in China. And if some of the precepts in this book are right, you'd like to think that the raucous democracy will gradually and slowly, albeit chaotically, assert itself. I hope so. That seems to me the drama of the rest of our lives rather than the you know, rather small sort of ordinary heartbreaks that take place in the United Kingdom. Yeah, when you look at the polling, you see the number of people who just presume that democracy is the best system now you're dropping kind of around the world. And I talked to someone from Carnegie who said that it used to be easy. You'd go around and say, look, democracy obviously works, and that's less obvious now. And I think you and I are both of a generation, perhaps that in some ways came of age intellectually in a odd period where it didn't feel like you needed to argue. For liberal democracy <laughs> you know between you know some yeah. ways between 89 and 2015 yeah. or whatever and, and now we're in another the period. trying to get in weren't they in yeah the and now they're not looking to leave yeah it did sort of feel like the end of history but it turned out that if it was it didn't end for very long um and so it's back to this back to your point right at the beginning which is the role of rhetoric not only as part of the business of democracy but also part of the defense of democracy so yeah well with that i think we should probably let you get on to your your next next project what is it give me give me the 30 second version of your next intellectual project before i let you go yeah i well i i think i'm going to write a um a history a chronological a narrative history of the british labor party but in particular what is going to be to answer the question, why is it such a hopeless electoral institution? Why does it lose so many times? Why, and my hunch is it quite likes losing. My hunch is, and, I'm, and then I think I can extend this out beyond the shores of the United Kingdom, because it's also true of the Democrats, and it's true of the French left, and it's true of the German Social Democrats. They're much less successful than their right of centre counterparts. And why is that? There's something in the pathology of being on the left, which is to say the doctrine, the, the fact that there's a received body of, of, of wisdom 
and therefore the left has heretics in a way the right doesn't, which is pathologically inclined towards defeat. And so that's the investigation of that impulse. So, so interesting. And you, you partly work if it isn't, it does, you could get good psychologists on this, I'm sure, which is how can you be on the side of the powerless, but then also successfully seizing the reins of power? And so it's almost like, you know, you can't, have, you, you have to be a loser in order to be genuinely progressive. You do. You do. And then you've always got a cause to complain about. If you're always. A, a campaigner, what you want, your perfect position is to be just short of power. So you're yeah. successful, but and, you then, and, then, and then you have someone else to blame for why. Absolutely. There's this great line from, from your, you, you know this better than me, but from your old boss, Tony Blair, when he was really up against, up against it from his own party and he was in a parliamentary, you know, in a parliamentary Labour Party meeting uh, and he was get, facing huge rebellions from his own backbenchers and so on. And he just said to them at one point, he said, listen, I stood by this party through three electoral defeats. All I'm asking you to do is stand by me through three election victories. <laughs> and it was just one of those brutal Blair moments. Yeah. It's just absolutely brutal. And that's just not a line that would ever work on the political right. It's just, it's, it just doesn't make sense. It's inconceivable that they, they would yeah. do that. Yeah, because power working. is what they're searching for. Yeah, well, it's going to be such an interesting... Oh, we can't wait to talk to you about that uh, a bit more. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on, Phil. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's been great fun. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.